Well, who's ready to get in the Word today? Yes. All right. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 38, if you will. Ezekiel chapter 38. <clears throat> Just after Genesis, before Revelation. Every so often on a Sunday morning, we take a step back, take a look at the world around us, and ask us ourselves the question, what in the world is going on? And certainly over the last two years of the COVID pandemic, we certainly have had a lot to talk about. And as we begin to see the COVID wave move into you know, an endemic state, Immediately, we are confronted on February 24th with the invasion of Ukraine by the nation of Russia. Many Christians are aware that Russia is alluded to in end times prophecy here in Ezekiel chapter 38. Many had questions concerning the relevance of the evasion of Ukraine and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so I thought we would take this morning, since we have just finished our look at Matthew 24 together last week, and try to make sense of Ezekiel chapter 38. Now hopefully you've read ahead. Every week we send out this week's scripture reading emails. I had you read 38 and 39 for context, but for time's sake today, unfortunately, we'll only be looking at chapter 38 and referencing chapter 39. But what does the Bible actually say? And why do we believe Russia is alluded to here in Ezekiel 38? And that's what we'll try to sift through this morning as we ask ourselves, what in the world is going on? And is there any biblical prophetic significance to the evasion of Ukraine by Russia? So let's take a moment to pray. Father, we do thank you. And we pray now that you would lead us through your word. And that, Father, we would interpret it properly, accordingly. The way that Ezekiel attended it to be read. And, Father, we do pray that you would encourage us in these days in which we live where we believe your return is imminent. And we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us begin by looking at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, set your face against Gog, Of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all of your army, horses, horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers, shields, and all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them. 
all of them with shields and helmets. Gomer and all of its troops and the house of Togomar from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. Here we have Ezekiel addressing an individual entitled Gog. Now, I I know that may sound strange, and in our culture it certainly is. And history does not tell us who this individual is. But we do know who, where this individual is from. Now, in the New King James and NASB versions of the Old Testament, there is an issue that we need to discuss before we go on much further. And it is an issue of clarity. Where I believe that the translations here in the New King James and in the NASB are misleading. And the reason being is because in both of those translations here in verse 2 and again in verse 3, they address Gog as the prince of Rosh. Many Bible prophecy experts from the 20th century, in the days of the Soviet Union, believe Rosh was a nation that represented the nation of Russia because of the similarity in the sounding of the two words. And Gog was a prince of Rosh, and they assumed that that meant Russia. There are problems with this, and we have to be honest if we are going to interpret Scripture properly. Rosh is not a proper noun. It is a common noun in the Hebrew language. Rosh is not a translation of a word. It is a transliteration of a word. Rosh is the actual Hebrew word. Okay? The Hebrew word is Rosh. And they transliterated it into English as Rosh, S-R-O-S-H. And it is not a nation. It is simply a title. It means chief prince. It means Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Rosh is not a nation. And we have to be careful with this. And again, going back and trying to discover why the translators in the NASB and the New King James did it this way, I wasn't able to discover the reasons why. But if you will look at the screen behind me in a moment, I will be showing you that out of the King James Version and also the Net Bible, which I think is a very good translation of the original scriptures, the original languages, excuse me, we will find that in both of those translations, it is designated chief prince of uh, Meshach and Tubal. Now, the identity of Rosh is very important. Does this mean that Gog from Magog doesn't represent Russia? No, I believe it still does, but let's use proper evidence to determine that. 
Do we agree? If we get into a discussion with someone and they go to the original Hebrew text, they're going to discover very quickly that this word rosh isn't a proper noun. It's a mere adjective. It's a common noun. It is just simply a position. It doesn't, it doesn't equate Russia because Russia, the word Russia didn't even come into play until the 15th century. All the other nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38 are clearly delineated either from Scripture or extra-biblical sources and were known at the time that Ezekiel wrote this. There was no existence of a nation Rosh because it wasn't a nation. It was simply the title Chief Prince. Okay, if you want to check out now because it's too academic, I completely understand. I think they're serving breakfast at the Golden Corral down the street because we're only going to go up from here. As we look at this together, verse 15 gives us the illusion that the, the Magog nation that Gog comes from is directly north of Israel. And of course, if you take a simple map and you look upwards, you will get to Russia. In fact, we have a map for you. It should be on the screen behind me. In verse 15, there's a Hebrew word that is used very far north. It is used in verse 15, which we'll look at in a moment. The Hebrew word actually means the farthest remote part of the north. There's also a mention of nations around coastlands, which can refer to those around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. I do believe that Magog does represent Russia, but not for the reasons that many consider it to be Russia. And again, I want to be honest, because if we're going to have interactions, if we're going to handle the Bible properly, we need to understand what the Bible is actually saying. Again, I don't know why the NASB went this direction or the New King James, which I love, went in this direction, but I have to be honest with you that in this case it is misleading. But we know that Gog is from Magog, which is to the remote north, the very farthest point from Israel, which of course today is modern-day Russia. Of course, Rusi came into play, the word that we get the word Russia from in the 15th century. And what we're going to discover is that Gog and the nation of Magog come against the nation of Israel with a collaboration, a number of nations with them for the purpose of taking what Israel apparently has. And many now see the invasion of Ukraine in the light of this account and say, does this have prophetic significance? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that Gog from Magog will come down. They will invade Israel with a coalition of other nations, which we'll look at in a moment. However, though, the target of the invasion is Israel and not Ukraine. Now, I do believe that there are significant um, concerns about the Ukrainian invasion, geopolitically, which we'll talk about at the end. But when it comes to this, let us take a look 
at what is actually said. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog. And again, if you were to go to the New King, I'm sorry, the King James Version of the Bible, you will see very quickly that in Ezekiel 38, 1 and 2, now the King James Version is the basis of the New King James Version. Notice how they phrase it. It should be on the screen behind us. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Again in the Net Bible, which editors and scholars were from Dallas Theological Seminary, who of course believe in the eschatology that we uh, hold to here at Calvary, a pre-trib um, position. Notice what they write. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, turned towards Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Another allusion to Russia in the minds of some is found in the two words Meshach and Tubal. Again, during the Soviet era, they were thought to mean the epiteliology of the beginnings of the words Moscow and Tubolsk. However, though, these weren't cities at the time of Ezekiel. They were actual regions, areas. And those regions and areas were found in the area of what is today modern-day Turkey. So this, too, cannot be our evidence to support that Magog today is Russia. However, though, when you look at the text and the geographical layout, you will understand quickly that the farthest most north point were the lands of the Scythians at that time, and today are represented by modern-day Russia. But there is a cohesion amongst these nations that are coming together right now before us. The nations that are mentioned here in Ezekiel 38 and what's happening today is paralleling perfectly. But the cohesion has to do with something else, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And Ezekiel is instructed to prophesy against them, verse 3, and this says the Lord, God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around... I put hooks in your jaws. God is going to bring them down against his people. That's what he's saying here. And lead you out with all of your army, horses, horsemen, all splendidly clothed, great companies with bucklers, shields, and all of them handling swords. Now, of course, this language describing military advancement, of course, was confined to the time in which the King James Bible was written, 1611, and also representative of the original Hebrew words that were used at that time. And it doesn't mean that that disqualifies it from representing current military uh, operations today. But then he goes on. He then lists Persia, which is today modern-day Iran. Let's put that map back up, Nathan. Ethiopia, Libya, are with them. 
all of them with shields and helmets. Now, Gomer in the Bible was the area that is currently occupied from Germany, Poland, and on down. And there is debate among scholars because, again, this isn't an exact science. We can't go to a a map of the world during Ezekiel's days and find out where the borders are all perfectly placed. But we do know from migration through the generations all the way from Genesis where these individuals settled. And so we do have a good idea of where they will eventually arrive and what they represented during the time of Ezekiel. So then verse 6, And all of its troops... And the house of Togamar, which again is suspect in where it is actually located. It appears to be representing more of the area of uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Afghanistan. That's where scholars line it today. And from the far north and all of its troops, many People with you, prepare yourself and be ready, and you and all your com- companies that are gathered about you, and guard, be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited in the latter years. Now again, the timing is given to us. The phrase latter years is absolutely used to indicate the period of eschatology, the last days, And you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. So this will occur, if we're asking ourselves when this will occur, after having a rough idea of the nations involved, God bringing them into this conflict with Israel. We know that it'll happen in the latter days, the last days. And we know that Israel will now be gathered back to her land, which happened, of course, in 1948. When it talks about being unwalled, which we'll see in a moment, or safely in their land, I think it is appropriate to see that in an interpretation of being sovereignly placed, recognized again as a nation, and established in the sense that they now can occupy the land once again after their expulsion, which of course took place from 70 AD to 1948, that they are now safely in their land again, which Israel is today. Now they're constantly being harassed, correct? And they did at one time have a project to wall off portions of their na- uh, nation in hopes that it would you know, deter the constant terrorism that has been leveled against the nation from the Islamic community around the nation. But the world recognizes Israel in the land of Israel today. And so we see the stage being set that will allow for God to draw these nations through Gog and Magog against them. So the timing is becoming clearer. In verse 9, 
You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. Again, Gog and Magog, that's what he's referring to. You and all of your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Two, here's the purpose of this invasion, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your... Bo- I, I'm sorry, I, every time I read that one, it's just, I just like, it means so, it's so different today, isn't it? Sorry I even had to take you there, but every time I read that. Um, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are, are again inhabited, and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. When Israel returned to their land in 1948, they weren't given the crown jewel of the Middle East at that time. It was, a, it was horrific. In fact, you have writings from Mark Twain who visited, and it was absolutely desolate. And of course, when you think of its desolation and the promises that God had made to his people, the Jewish people, that when they did return, he would bless the land again, you see how blessed Israel is agriculturally today, and you realize that it's a work of God. In fact, we've had many of the prime ministers of uh, Israel speak on behalf that God has kept his uh, promises to his people and blessed the land after their return. But it does say something more interesting about their idea of peace, that they're going to have a unique idea of peace at this time. Now, of course, we've seen for the last 40 years, every American president try to broker peace within that, within that area, between Israel and her neighbors. Some of them were somewhat successful, others were complete failures, but it never, I believe, drew the peace that it is talked about here. And the reason I say that is because Daniel tells us very clearly in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, uh, verse 27, excuse me, that the tribulation period will come up, begin with the Antichrist negotiating a peace covenant with the nation of Israel. Many believe that in that peace agreement that the Antichrist will broker, it will allow them to once again rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. But I believe that it is around that period of time that this event will take place. That they will be offered this peace and yet Russia with their nations alongside of them will be drawn against Israel and then God will respond on behalf of his people. Now the placement of this particular event again has been cause for great debate amongst very well-meaning Christians. Because we don't have a clear delineation or a clear notation that tells us exactly when this is going to happen. Some people believe it'll happen just before or just after the beginning of the tribulation period, the seven-year period of time that we've talked about in such great lengths. Others believe that this will be part of the scenario mentioned in Revelation, the battle of Armageddon, that this will be part of that event. 
And lastly, there are those who see a connection between Ezekiel in 38 and Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, we have another event where Gog and Magog are mentioned. And as a result, people you know, make that connection and say, okay, well then according to Revelation 20, Magog once again appears or appears. And so it must be after the millennial kingdom. But there are problems with the idea that it's going to happen during Armageddon. And there are problems with it if it's going to happen at the end of the millennial kingdom. Aren't you glad you came today? You know, do we ever talk about light stuff here? You know? But again, this is God's word. And so we need to look at it clearly, objectively, to see what it actually says. Now, concerning the battle of Armageddon, on the screen behind me, you may, you'll have the slide, Revelation 16, 12 through 6. Let's, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the waters dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out of the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle of the great day of Almighty God. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. Now, when we talk about the idea of Armageddon, it is clearly articulated in Scripture that there will be this battle, this last battle. And this battle will be between the forces that rise behind the Antichrist and the nation of the East that comes to uh, invade or to challenge the Antichrist and his military forces. And this will occur in the Valley of Megiddo, and we call this event the, the Battle of Armageddon. The nation to the east of Israel undoubtedly, I believe, represents China who is able to amass the type of military size that is required to fulfill the prophecy that is given here. So I do not believe that the battle of Armageddon is, is the same as what is written in Ezekiel 38, because it has different players with, involved within it. But then that leads them to consider that at the end of the millennial will be the time of the battle of Ezekiel 38. Revelation 27 through 9. Now when the thousand years have expired, and again we hold to a literal thousand year period of time for the millennial kingdom, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And here is mentioned Gog and Magog to gather them together to battles whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth, 
and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven to devour them. Now that sounds pretty similar to Ezekiel 38. Here's the problem. After the millennial kingdom, we as believers go immediately into the new heaven and the new earth. But yet after the battle of Ezekiel 38, there seems to be a seven-year period of time that still exists. For example, Ezekiel 39.9, Then those who dwell in the city of Israel will go out and set fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they will make for themselves fire for seven years. So it doesn't again seem to fit that if this was the occasion that is prophesied in Ezekiel 38, after the the millennial kingdom, which is clearly indicated here in Revelation 7 through 9, we go into the new heaven and the new earth. There isn't a need for a seven-year period of time where we have to live, they have to live off of that energy that is derived from the unused weaponry. It is interesting that, you know, we saw in our abandonment of Afghanistan last year, how many weapons the United States left behind. I was appalled by that. I don't know if you were. But I couldn't believe that we had almost, you know, rearmed the Taliban to do whatever they so desired to do. And as a result, we put them in a pretty significant position to easily resist the remaining troops that we had there. But after this war, after these nations come against Israel, there will be enough left behind for them to survive upon for seven years. No, I think that the best fitting place for the, this battle articulated in Ezekiel 38 is somewhere right before or right after the beginning of the tribulation period. Some have suggested, such as Dr. Mark Hitchcock, that this may be the catalyst in which propels the world into allegiance with the Antichrist. And I think that's an interesting observation. But as we return, let us read chapter 38 and realize that as this takes place, and again, we start in verse 13, the world looks on and asks, why are you doing what you're doing? Notice this. Sheba and Dan, the merchants of Tarshish, which all have their young lions, say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take... <laughs> Booty? (laughs) You guys are never going to read that word the same, are you? Have you gathered to take booty? To carry away silver and gold? To take away livestock and goods? To take great plunder? There is something in Israel that is attractive to the invading army that they want to seize. We don't know what that is. Apparently at the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy, those around, and I believe that's what's represented here by Sheba and Dan, which really uh, represents an area of the Arabia at that time, east and the farther regions of Arabia at that time. 
And then there's Tarshish, which initially people thought may represent England because Tarshish was a place that mined tin. But there's other good evidence that it represents Spain, the area of Spain. Either way, they look on and they ask the question, why are you doing what you are doing? Why are you invading Israel at this time? That's basically the question that they're asking. Is it simply to gain what you don't have, to gain wealth and so forth? But they're asking the question, why? One of the concerns that I have about the the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that right now, here in the United States of America, if you ask 10 people why Russia invaded Ukraine, you'd probably get 10 different answers. I truly believe, and I don't mean this rude in any way, that many Americans prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine couldn't find Ukraine on a map. Because the areas that splintered off of this, uh, Russia and you know, disbanded and divided after the collapse of the Soviet Union are areas today that we are very unfamiliar with. We're unfamiliar with their politics. We're unfamiliar with what is happening in the actual land itself. So it doesn't surprise me that when Russia comes with these nations against Israel, that the world would stand back and ask the question, why? Why are you doing this? Again, we know that God has put hooks into their jaws to draw them into this conflict. We know that they came there for a purpose, for booty and spoil and so forth, but we don't know exactly what it is. I was just reading the other day that Israel has found one of the greatest sources of natural gas. How much has natural gas been in the news lately? Of course, Israel has been finding oil left and right. But today, Russia, of course, is one of the largest oil producers in the world. We don't know exactly what the identifying factor is of what they're trying to take. But whatever it is, they're not going to get it. Because God's going to step in. And he's going to defend his people. And he is going to subdue their aggressor. Just as he brought in, you know, the Babylonians to take Israel out of their nation for the sins in which they had committed, he allowed that to occur and then later judged the Babylonians for their cruelty against his people. But here we will see that he will draw these nations in, but this time the result will be different. Verse 14, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north. And here's that interesting reference, the remote north, the farthest point. And when many people with you, uh, peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land, and it will be again, notice, in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. When Pharaoh refused to release the children of Israel from slavery... 
there in Egypt. It's an interesting progression that the Bible gives us. Each time Moses approached Pharaoh, Pharaoh responded by hardening his heart against God. And then finally, after several attempts to try to plea with Pharaoh to release God's people, the Bible then changes and says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did so that he may show himself strong before them. God solidified the decision of Pharaoh in his own heart, knowing that Pharaoh wouldn't relent. And here again, it appears that though the mind is stirred and they are drawn to the invasion of God's people, the land of Israel, their hearts are hardened against God and God is using it as a vehicle of judgment towards them, which is consistent in other areas of the Old Testament in the manner in which God judged people. But as they come down, notice what he says. Verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you. O God, Gog before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God. Are you he whom I have spoken in the former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? That is a verse that is so neglected. When did God refer to this? Most likely in Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 14, and the book of Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 5 through 20, alluding to this moment. But then notice what happens. And it will come to pass at that same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in, my, in the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea and the birds of heavens uh, of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the earth all and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fail, fall to the ground. Excuse me. I will call for, my, uh, for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him and on his troops and on many people who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know me that I am the Lord. So this is the complete picture of the Ezekiel 38 event. Many call it the Magog invasion. But as the, at the beginning I said I believe that there is an element that is absolutely bringing a cohesiveness to the nations mentioned in this chapter. And that is the fact that all of the supporting nations of Magog are today all Islamic. 
They are all Islamic nations. And again, we know that Israel's presence in that area is a constant reminder to them that the Quran is incorrect. Because Israel shouldn't be there. And yet they are. As they believe that they are truly the descendants of God through Ishmael, the Jewish people's residence within the nation of Israel continuously reminds them that it was not through Ishmael, but through Isaac that God's people came. Today we see an alliance between Russia and the Islamic nations like we've never seen before. And the one to really keep an eye on, we've often pointed to Iran, but it's clear the allegiance that Iran and Russia have together. In fact, sorry to say that the nuclear agreement that was set with Iran by the Obama administration is now going into effect again. Russia is going to be able to build another nuclear power plant in Iran because of it. Um, We've already seen that relationship escalate and grow. But there's another that's even more concerning to me, and that is the nation of Turkey. Turkey continues to move away from the West and into the hands of Russia. And we know that they are mentioned in several ways here in this scenario, and that alliance continues to grow. Eventually, this event will be fulfilled exactly as God said it will be fulfilled. But we can see the pieces on the board begin to be pushed into place that one day will bring about the scenario that God has called for. Again, I believe that this could happen just before or just after the beginning of the tribulation period. But when individuals now say to you that Russia is mentioned in the Bible, this is the passage that they look to. And I do believe that it is Russia that it speaks of. And Russia will play a significant role before and after the Millennial Kingdom. Throughout the last two years, the ideas of communism and socialism have been talked about in this country more than more in the last three decades than ever before. I think everyone should read the book by Dr. David Jeremiah on socialism to understand that communism and socialism just don't simply disbelieve in God. They are anti-God in every way, shape, and form. The ideologies of communism and even socialism are rooted deeply in the idea that God does not exist and any idea of God is contradictory, contradictory to their endeavors of trying to bring about a cohesive society through communism. All you have to do is read the uh, works of Marx to see that. This is not a simple alternative to a, a nations that have grown out of the ideas of Judeo-Christian values the understanding of God's role within a country and a society. I think we need to be aware of that as we have these discussions. And so it's easy to see how this nation can be used in such a way in the last days. Especially if the Islamic nations see that Russia is equipping them and that Russia is motivating them 
and Russia is behind them and leading them in this endeavor, it's easy to see. But what about today? What about this invasion of Ukraine? Should this concern us? Should this give us a moment of pause? I think that first and foremost, we have to understand the question, why did Russia do what they did? And again, unfortunately, we are not very good at history here in America, are we? As one writer says, we live in the United States of amnesia. We don't remember anything past last Monday. I thought that was interesting. But history tells us that there were many things that led up to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. There are some in our media that support the idea that Putin simply wants to revive the old Soviet Union. There are others that he is simply responding to the cries of the Donbass region. They wanted to once again merge in, in with Russia and he is now honoring that, that agreement. There's also the violation of the Minsk agreement that took place where the Donbass region was meant to be a buffer zone between Ukraine and the Soviet Union. But there's been conflict in there ever since that uh, Minsk agreement had been agreed upon and Russia brokered that deal. Of course, there's the idea of stopping Ukraine from joining NATO. This is why I said earlier this year we could have given a moment of pause to Russia by simply confirming to him that we were not going to allow Ukraine to enter into NATO. Now, many questioned why I said that. Well, why wouldn't we want them in NATO? Again, history tells us that if they were to have joined NATO, the NATO military forces would have put missiles in Ukraine, just right over the border of Russia. And so some said, well, what's wrong with that? And I said, well, President Kennedy had a real problem with that when Russia put missiles in Cuba. It's an aggressive move, and it can provoke and spark something more in occurring. I'm not saying that we shouldn't support Ukraine, but I ask that we consider the ramifications of allowing them to join NATO. And now there are reports that their joining of NATO, though promised, was never going to be realized. There are others who believe that the Russians went in to destroy and capture biolabs that were found throughout the Ukrainian area. At first, when that was reported, the mainstream media came after them and said this is absolute ridiculousness until all of a sudden, one of the United States officials absolutely confirmed that there were biolabs in Ukraine and was concerned that they were unsecure and that the Russians' forces could have obtained them. But then we come down to the simple idea that Putin is just a madman and he's just crazy and this is what crazy people do. I'm not saying that he may not be mad, but I think that if we simply relinquish it to that, we are shallow in our understanding of world events. We responded, the world responded, the West responded with sanctions. Sanctions that initially we were told were going to deter Putin from invading. Later, 
when we placed the sanctions on him after he invaded, we were told that they were never meant to deter Putin. The problem with the imposing of sanctions is that it should have happened before he invaded. But the question then becomes, are the sanctions having the effect that the West so desires them to have? And this is where it gets concerning to me. What we have seen over the last month, since February 24th, in a short period of time, there is a cohesion now occurring between India, China, and Russia that we've never seen before. Of course, the West, specifically Europe, is devastated by these sanctions because 40% of their oil comes from Russia. And this is why Germany simply did not want Russian oil sanctions to be imposed. Here in the United States of America, I think all of us have felt the pressure at the gas pump. And as a result we find that we were importing almost a half a billion barrels of oil from Russia every day when we could easily once again become energy independent here in the United States of America just by pumping more. Not even the turning on of the Keystone Pipeline, but just simply by pumping more. And yet we turn and we deplete the reserves that we have for military purposes. But in the alliance between India, China and Russia. One of the sanctions that was supposed to have the most effect was the sanction from the SWIFT system, the international banking system. Russia just simply jumped over to the smaller system that China is now bringing about that India seems to be jumping on also. Now, China, Russia, India... You don't think that that means much, but think of the number of people in those three nations. 20% of the global market is found in those three nations. The sanctions were supposed to cripple the ruble. Oh, the ruble did crash initially, but then we discovered that Putin had been storing gold for years up until the invasion, and the ruble went down, and then it recovered And it's almost back to exactly where it was before the invasion. Now, why is that a concern for us? Well, what's a concern for us is this. Is that with the the revival of the ruble, Putin then went on to say what all of the world just dreaded hearing. That oil and gas purchases were now going to have to be done in the ruble. Now you say, well, what does that matter? And here's where I think we have to be concerned as a nation. Many in America don't realize that the reason that we are able to carry the deficit that we do, the $30 trillion of debt that we do, is because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. The moment the world moves away from the dollar, as the reserve currency is the moment that we see an economic shakeup in this country that we have never seen since the Great Depression. We already see inflation whittling away at our savings. 
if this were to happen, we would be in an economic sense that we have never seen before. I can't even fathom the ramifications of what would take place and what would happen. We have to be very careful right now and we have to walk circumspectly and we have to take our time prayerfully making decisions going forward. God will take care of His people. I'm convinced of that. But the other thing that concerns me about the Ukrainian invasion, and trust me, I, my heart goes out to the Ukrainian people and in a minute I'm going to tell you how you can help them on the ground directly. History again tells us that it was very small events that sparked the two greatest wars in the history of mankind. The Great War, World War I, and of course, World War II. In each case, there were small events that took place that ratcheted up the tension throughout the world, and eventually that tension boiled over. The Great War... World War I took place, and then World War II afterwards. Just 30 years afterwards, World War II takes place. Germany at the, the, the beginning of both. This event, the way it is going right now, and the tensions with NATO, the West, the, the economic consideration, the natural resource situation, and the already threat of nuclear exchange. Putin put his nuclear forces on high alert just three weeks ago. The foreign minister of Russia came out and said, any nation that comes against us, directly or indirectly, will be responded to by nuclear force. Is this just the rattling of sabers? Or are we seeing a seismic shift in our geopolitical world? Please know that if you look into history, you will find out that what seemed to be little skirmishes here and there, when Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, okay, well, he's invaded Poland, maybe he'll just get it out of his system, you know, and of course, Chamberlain came back to London, peace in our time and so forth, and what happened next? It was voices like Winston Churchill who kept saying, they are rearming, it is going to go farther, and nobody wanted to hear it because everyone was so uh, devastated by the First World War. We, again, believe that these events can never happen. But are they happening? Are they starting to take place? Are we starting to see things as we know it unravel? Time will tell. And I hope that cooler heads prevail. But I also am a firm believer that one of the restraints from a larger world war or a larger conflict throughout the world was the strength of the United States of America. And we've done horrific things over the years, don't get me wrong, as a nation around the world. But the strength deterred people from taking the next step. I'm not sure we're seeing in that same strength anymore. 
I'm not sure that the world takes us as seriously anymore through the claims of weapons of mass destruction that were never discovered, through the abandonment of Afghanistan, to our lack of response in 2008 when Putin took Georgia or in 2014 when Putin took Crimea. Do they take us as seriously today as they once did? And though I don't believe the invasion of Ukraine has a direct impact on biblical prophecy, it certainly has an impact upon geopolitical affairs around the world, and we need to be abreast of what is going on around us to pray accordingly. That being said, if you want to help the people of Ukraine, and there are reports coming out now of horrific war crimes that are taking place, Will you please consider supporting the Ukrainian people through Samaritan's Purse? Of course, Samaritan's Purse is run by Franklin Graham, who we partner with for Operation Christmas Child, but they have direct contact with the people of Ukraine, and through a financial support of, of that, we can help them directly on the ground. A field hospital has already been set up for those in Ukraine by Samaritan's Purse, and again, as Christians, let us be concerned for the people of Ukraine who are suffering under the weight of this incredible, incredible tragic event that I believe, I truly believe this could have been avoided. But yet, here we are, and the West now has to ask themselves what they are going to do from it going any further. Interesting times in which we live. But that all said, let us know that God is on the throne and that everything is playing out to fulfill the plans and purposes that he has sought from the very foundations of the world. And next Sunday, we're going to, we are going to celebrate the one event that no military in history can ever overthrow, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to remind ourselves next Sunday that regardless of what happens around us, we are in the kingdom of God. And that for us here and today who know the Lord, this is the worst it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better. But also remind ourselves that for those who don't know the Lord, this is the best it's ever going to get, and it's only going to get worse. But as we celebrate the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I should say remember the crucifixion and celebrate the resurrection, I hope that it will bring us back into focus. Because there's a lot going on, isn't there? But as God said to Esther, as I have you here for a time such as this, as God communicated, not directly, but indirectly to Esther, I have you here for a time such as this. Maybe God has you for here a time such as this. God has us here for a time such as this. So what would he have us to do?